All right, guys, good morning. Um, if you don't already have one, there's a handout in the back. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 11. And as we get into that, uh, we're going to mention an ordinary work of God's good providence, uh, namely Mother's Day, right? You guys that are mothers, and I mean that guys universally as in folks, uh, you folks that are mothers, uh, this is something you did by ordinary generation, the normal way in which God has seen fit for us to reproduce and people the earth. That is an act of God's providence. God uses secondary means, normal things, normal people uh, making children. And so happy Mother's Day in uh, your participation in that normal act of God's good providence. And we're going to see today, of course, that is uh, different from, you know, miraculous works of providence. Uh, but we'll get into that in a bit. So uh, as we start out, let's go ahead and recite Shorter Catechism number 11. I apologize, this is in green, but you guys should have your hand out. Again, if you don't have one, they're in the back. I'll read the question and we can responsively answer together. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Let's pray. Father, as we gather together today and uh, ponder your good treatment of your creation, we pray that you would open our hearts to be receptive to your word, to remember who we are, your creatures, remember who you are, our great creator, and for us that are believers, our Father. Uh, we pray, Father, that the imprint of your love for us would melt our hearts and bring us to gratitude for how you are good to us in the day in and day out of our reality. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, it might be helpful as we get started today to ponder what providence is isn't. Um, we've read what the Catechism says. For those of you that are inclined to ignore me, you can, you can read the, shorter, or the Westminster Catechism, chapter 5, on the back. But um, when we talk about providence, of course, we realize that we're interacting in a world with opposing ideas, right? And so, you know, uh, maybe we'll start out talking about deism Deism was a philosophical way of thinking about the divine. It was sort of the philosophical bee's knees about the time of the American Revolution. Um, some people would claim that some of our great American founding fathers, uh, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, are likely in the deist mold, and I think that's fair insofar as it goes. Um, now, do keep in mind when we argue about origins when we argue about really big things that we think are great, the temptation to say those guys are on my side is oh so strong. Um, and certainly with the Declaration of Independence, uh, inception of the country, that's certainly a thing. Uh, it is interesting though, when we look at the Declaration, whose primary author was Jefferson, uh, that it uses the word providence towards the end of the document after all of that complaining about all of the reasons why we're justified in rebelling against the King of England. And personally, I have some misgivings for that. Yes, I'm an American, I love my country, but I also probably would have had Tarm joining that, that team. That might make some of you upset. 
But nonetheless, the word providence is used at the end there. And a lot of people, it is true that Jefferson's Bible, you know, which is something that his great-granddaughter finds a hundred years later. He probably didn't finish it till shortly before his death. It is heavily deistic. But to scoop all of that content back into Thomas Jefferson's mind in 1776 is a bit of a stretch, and we just don't know, okay? Certainly the man was skeptical concerning religion. Probably nobody we would lay hands on to be an order, a deacon or an elder, I think that's fair to say, uh, and maybe not even make it into church membership. But on the other hand, Jefferson in 1776 would probably be theologically sophisticated enough and obtuse enough that people would hate him for being too religious. So that's just kind of interesting. Anyhow, that was sidetracked, sorry. Deism. The idea with deism, of course, is that God creates. God is wholly other. He exists outside of creation. He makes creation. But we've got this one arrow, and this arrow is God as creator, okay? So if we're thinking about the deistic conception of God, God is the almighty creator. He creates the earth and us and everything that's in it. But there's no after-service policy. There's no AAA card. If you get a flat in the middle of the cosmos, you are on your own, right? You don't, you're not like the you know, 25-year-old males I see on the side of the road with a flat tire that get out their phones and call AAA. <laughs> Little dig there, that bothers me. Son, you're gonna let your family die in the heat while you wait for AAA, figure it out. Um, but anyhow, uh, no, there's, there's no help, right? And so the focus for deists is they would argue that creation is fundamentally rational, it's comprehensible, you figure it out, right? You need to use your five senses in order to rationally construct a vehicle for fixing things, right? And that's really attractive. So that's the one-legged form of God. He's, he only acts as creator, right? He doesn't, so the, the, the old saying is God makes creation and goes on vacation, right? So, obviously, what we don't have here are prayers. There's no prayers, there's no supplications. God doesn't care, so to speak. Okay, another view that we could think about, and this is common amongst world religions, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, etc., and that's pantheism, right? Pan, of course, is the idea there's all, and then theism is the conception that there's some sort of deity, right? There's God that exists. Well, within pantheism, we got the idea that here's God. I'm going to go ahead and color in the God part, the universe part, and the you part. There it is, right? That we are part of the divine, right? That you're maybe a drop in the bucket of a sea of divinity, right? And look no further for this in Western culture and its sort of growth than, you know, your local yoga class when, sorry, the 60-year-old white lady that's culturally appropriating Hinduism but not, um, when she comes along and says, the divine in me greets the divine in you. Yes, Mrs. Phillips, I went there. So that's sort of a common thing, right? And that's in the culture, right? That everything's divine, I'm divine. And, right? It, it's sort of, I guess it gives you some dignity. But then on the other hand, if everything's divine, is anything really divine, right? Um, and then of course, what we're gonna be looking at today is the idea of Christian theism, right? That there's God who exists outside of creation all by his lonesome, doesn't need nothing, but for some reason unknown to me, he creates creation. He makes a rational, comprehensible, understandable world, right? But also, he acts in the world today. There is a AAA card. You can call God. He does care for you. 
And as a believer, he cares for you as father. All of his attributes that we've looked at in previous lessons, which we haven't hit in a while, but uh, God is that for you as he exercises things, okay? So we're going to unpack this catechism today. I've got my proof texts, uh, most of them. You know, we start here, go down, and it gets really busy, and then we end up over here. So if you want to follow along with what I'm quoting, there it is. Whether you can see it or not, I don't know. So there we go. In contrast to deism and pantheism, the Bible teaches that God is separate from creation, right? But he is nonetheless intimately involved. So God is separate from creation. He creates creation, but he's intimately involved. And we talk about that intimate involvement of God. We're talking about the realm of providence, right? God's not only creator, but he's also the sovereign ruler of the world. He has the right to rule, okay? He has the right to rule. He's sovereign. Contrary to deism, God is always involved in his creation. He preserves it. He does not leave it to run on its own powers. Hebrews 1.3 says, He, this is Jesus in this context, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus, the eternal second person of the Godhead, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. It's a present, continuous activity. God actively upholds his creation. There's no making creation and going on vacation. Colossians 1.17 says of Jesus, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God in Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. The same power that he used to exercise in creation is exercised in preserving his creation. So, there's twin energies here to speak, the you know, creative act of God and the providential act of God. And of course, this takes us back to our former question a couple of them ago in the catechism. You know, how does God execute his decrees? God executes his decrees through the works of creation and providence, right? So we've got these twin energies of God acting in his creation, one to create, one to uphold. Deuteronomy 32:12, and this is speaking of Moses, the Lord alone guided him namely Moses, not some foreign God that was with him. So God personally is leading Moses and the Israelites out of Egypt. Then, of course, the classic verse, which gets down to the real nitty-gritty in Matthew 10, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. But even the heads of your hair are numbered. God gets down to that sort of nitty-gritty basis, right? Those sparrows, maybe those annoying pigeons on your roof. That'll, that'll get us frustrated with God's providence. The steadily disappearing hairs on my head. God cares about that, okay? That sort of nitty-gritty care of God. Even the seemingly little things. Acts 17, 27 through 28, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for indeed we're his offspring. It's in God that we live and move and have our being. We're dependent upon him for our existence. 
we're dependent upon him to preserve us. So that's kind of, you know, the biblical doctrine in contrast with theism. Theism, or deism, sorry, whoops. Uh, deism here is missing a leg, right? It has the effect of recognizing God as creator, but God doesn't care for you. There's no reason to pray. Are we necessarily to reflect his glory in the way we act and the way we think and who we are? Eh. On the other hand, with providence, of course, we see that God is active in creation. He cares. Well, contrary to pantheism, God governs all creatures, and this is Westminster Confession of Faith 5.1. Contrary to pantheism, God governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest to the least, yet he is separate from creation. God can't exist without the, or God can exist without the creation, but no part of creation can exist apart from God. Of course, that's God as both uh, creator and sovereign controller, right? God providentially controls his creation. Now this leads us to the question, because all of us are sitting here and all of us have things that if we were going to design uh, our life, there's things we'd rather not have to deal with, right? And let's be honest, let's not, let's take our dissatisfaction a little further. If we're going to design God, which by the way, some folks, especially atheists, which we didn't make a diagram for, but it's okay, they don't believe in any of it, so it's invisible, it's fine. Um, Especially atheists would point out, hey, you guys, God, there's lots of gods, and because of the reality of lots of gods practiced around the world, didn't we just make God, right? I think it was Mark Twain who said, you know, God made us in his image, and we have incessantly been returning the favor, so to speak. So if we're going to go really big on our, on, on our complaining, aren't we upset with God? Wouldn't we make a God who which, of course, is an argument for the fact that God isn't made because we're a pretty foolish maker if we were making a deity that is all-powerful, is all-good, and yet, nonetheless, people have cancer. Uh, marriages dissipate. Uh, you raise kids, and they don't turn out how you hope. Uh, we find out that we're beasts, and we're not who we thought we were when we raised kids. All of these kinds of wacky things, right? Can't We, we want to park that at God's door. That's ultimately where we end up. So this is, makes us uncomfortable when we think about that whole litany of complaints that we have. God governs and preserves all things. For some Christians, this is an uncomfortable statement that God controls all things. But as we come face to face and realize that God is not a politician to be elected through popular sovereignty, right, the doctrine that we, the people, have the right to rule, but rather, of course, God in his being has the right to rule because he's the creator and we're the creation, right? When we have to bow the knee and say, uh, Lord, you are Lord, and I recognize that, well, we realize it's what the Bible teaches, okay? Matthew 5.45, so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So we see that God's providence, and maybe we could lump in here while we talk about this, common grace, God and his providence is kind and good to all of his creatures. 
Here we have two fields imagined, perhaps. One field is owned by an axe murderer who is getting away with it, and one person is owned by the local rabbi who, by all accounts, keeps Torah. Both of those fields get rain, Jesus says, right? And that whole sort of execution of judgment that sinners deserved is placed on hold during the era of common grace, right? That God is not executing his judgment. God is gracious through his good providence through all people to all people. There's rain on the just and the unjust. Psalm 104, 14. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring food from the earth. So God cares about sheep and goats, right? Uh, these provisions, right? Job 37, 10 and 12. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. So we see that basic things which we're likely to view in, as modern folks, like this is just, it's, it's mother nature, right? No, it's, it's actually God being pleased through his good providence to work all these things out from the hair of your head to a couple of sparrows to frozen waters to grass for beasts. That is God's good care for his creation. Daniel 4.25, and so we are moving into the realm of politics here. Daniel 4.25, uh, and this is talking about King Nebuchadnezzar, I think it's the right name, uh, you, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. 2.21 says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So God here, of course, he gets up in our business in terms of uh, the natural realm. Uh, he freeze-thaw cycles. Think about geology and rock splitting. That is the providence of God. God is Lord of history in all aspects. Our president, God has put him there. Okay, uh, All of these things, God has the sovereign power and his providential control of all of his creation. That, that is what happens. Acts 17.26 and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, right? So we see, of course, the uh, exponential growth of humanity into different tribes and tongues and nations and peoples and languages. This is not something where God goes, oops, right? That is not in God's lexicon. Didn't expect that one. Uh, no, no, this is in God's good providential care. Acts, uh, sorry, First uh, Samuel 2, 6 through 8. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. 
The Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Right? I mean, this is this kind of stuff makes us uncomfortable, right? Social mobility is in the hands of God. Right? As Americans, social mobility is one of our big boasts, right? Come to our country and there's social mobility. Now I get it. If you're young, you don't believe in social mobility. We're all oppressed. And there is something to that, right? Times are harder now than they were a generation ago. I think that's fair to say. And maybe we should be sensitive to that when we hear that. But on the other hand, if you're a kid that just came from Cuba, social mobility is a thing, right? So perspective matters a lot, and the politics that our kids get fed often influences them. But God is the God of all of these things. He makes the rich. He makes the poor. Now, we'll look into that later. Do you have some part to play in this? Of course you do. We'll see that when we talk about secondary causes and the means that God uses. Proverbs 16.1. <clears throat> the plans of the heart belong to man. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Right? We've all experientially thought about that one. I plan on this one, and why didn't I say that, right? Um, now, it's, I'm not arguing for sort of a possession-type theory or anything here, but uh, oftentimes what we, you know, God makes a plan, but man makes a plan, but God directs his ways, right? That's, that's a thing. All right. Now, this leads us to... Uh, Oh, what is it? 1C, the choose-your-own-adventure book approach to the providence of God. Now, it, I, let's be honest, right? There's, because of you know, life not panning out the way we want, we'd like to fine-tune God, right? Can I open the hood on God? Can I get out my stethoscope and see what's ticking? Can I fix it? Can I fix him? Now, of course, we can't, okay? We don't fix God. God doesn't need any fixing. All right. But some people would like to think, well, okay, that's kind of a stifling view of God, right? My freedom, my, my free will, right? That sort of big debate that Erasmus and Luther had, and Luther taunted him, where's this free will you have, Erasmus? Neener, 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 it's not there. Um, that's, sort of, that's sort of Luther's shtick in terms of his debate with Erasmus. Um, some people would like to think, well, okay, I get it. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign. He has control. He's almighty. I'm not. He's the creature. I'm the creator. Uh, he's the creator. I'm the creature. So some people think, well, maybe God gives us like a, uh, oh, what does it say? A choose your own adventure book. You guys remember these? Like you, you read the first few pages and it gives you an introduction. And then it says, there's this, you know, I don't know. The Germans are coming. Go to page 15 if you want to engage them in battle. Go to page 32 if you want to remain uh, neutral, right? And you choose. You choose your own adventure. And the neat thing about these books, I loved these as books because it was interactive, right? It wasn't me just reading something. I felt like this is like an early iteration of the Internet, right? Like you get to choose what you want, right? Um, well, ultimately, we know if you've ever read those books, there's only a few outcomes, right? There, there's a few outcomes where you choose those pages and that's where you'll end up. And so some people have thought, well, maybe God is like that because we do have freedom, and we do. Like the outfit you're wearing today, it's 
probably influenced by several things. Maybe it was the cleanest shirt on the rack. <laughs> the cleanest dirty shirt on the rack, kind of like the US dollar, right? Um, sorry. Uh, it, it's a thing, right? We do have freedom. And so that, that feeling of because I've got freedom makes us think, well, maybe, you know, we choose things. And at the end, God knows what's going to happen at the end, of course. But in terms of what iterations we choose on the way there, that's all up to us. Well, so we basically, when we take that viewpoint, we want to admit that God controls the big things, but not the little things. And here's a, a good story to illustrate how that's just not the case. Um, some of you know this, I'm sure. For want of a general, the army was defeated. For want of a horse, the general was detained. For want of a shoe, the horse was not available. For the want of a nail, the horse could have no shoe. Now, of course, we've all heard this story, and the point is, is don't despise the days of small things. Don't imagine that insignificant things have nothing to do with anything, right? The fact of the matter is, is we live in a very complex world, so much so that something as insignificant as a nail could make it so a hoof doesn't get attached to a horse, a horse isn't rideable, general can't travel, and a war is lost, right? So the intricacy of God's good providence shows us that everything is related. Now, thus far, uh, we've learned that God preserves and governs all things by his providence, from the seemingly insignificant things like a sparrow to the workings of the entire cosmos. God preserves and governs his creation. But now I'd like to move on and ask, uh, you know, uh, how? How does God preserve and govern all things by his providence? We know, of course, that God is the first cause of all things, right? God is the creator. He makes all things out of nothing by the word of his power. And, of course, he plans all things. Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? So we could say that God, uh, the providence of God, is God working out his decree in history. Um, uh, former OPC church historian Charlie Dennison, he uh, he said once that history is what God does to us. Uh, now, on the one hand, that's encouraging, depending on your mindset. On the other hand, that sounds stifling, right? But I want you to see that when we talk about God working out his decree in history or providence, uh, I want you to see that God generally uses second causes, right? And so that's why this, this leg here is also important, right? We do know that God creates, even the deists are fans of that. But we're saying not only does he create, but he's actively involved in the creation today, right? That's the, the providence of God. So the created universe has an order to it, and it works according to the laws God established for it. For example, day and night come to pass every day because God created them in a covenant relationship wherein they obey his design. It's interesting. Uh, there's debates on what forms a biblical covenant and what doesn't. And Wednesday night, if you come, we'll end up talking about covenant of works. And some people are uncomfortable with that because it doesn't have explicit covenant language. But God uses covenant language in many places, even when he doesn't explicitly use the term berit or, uh, I don't know, I forget the, the Greek equivalent. doesn't matter. 
But uh, the, uh, th that God is a God that makes agreements. And here we see that God makes an agreement with the stars and the sun and the moon, right? The constellations. Jeremiah 33, 20 through 21 says, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. So God's using covenantal language to talk about the way in which he made the sun and the moon to do their things, to do their dance. God makes a covenant with them. And they are going to fulfill that. And the argument here, and this reminds me of Motown and any good love song. Think about all that music where there's a young man promising things that are outside of his control, right? Uh, some of you might know Four Tops is my favorite band. Uh, if Columbus never sailed the seas, if Longfellow never wrote a rhyme, if leaves never fell from a tree, and if the sands have never told the time, then I don't love you like I do. That is deep. But I don't know who wrote that. Probably Lamont, Dozier and Lamont, I'm guessing. Guys, you don't have the mojo to make those promises, right? You don't. But God does. God has the ability to say, my love for you is such that it would take the sun to stop shining and the moon to stop that reflective glory of that sun for me to somehow break my covenantal faithfulness to David. And beloved, for you that are found in Christ, that is the promise for you. When you find yourself walking about and disappointed at a difficult providence of God, go out and look at the sun. Don't look directly. Put on some glasses. Maybe, maybe a welder's helmet would be a good idea. But that is evidence of God's good love for you. God's creation does its thing. The sun and the moon act according to their secondary causes. God is saying, Hey, I've got all that pent-up angst and love of a, a, a young Lamont, Dozier Lamont, you know, songwriting group. And I'm not just trying to get a young lady to like me. My word is true, and you can trust it, okay? That is beautiful, that God, through his secondary causes, the big things, right? I don't know about you, but the sun's kind of big. It's a big deal, like, my limited understanding of science, like, it's the foremost means of gravity for our solar system. It's a big deal. Go check it out. God loves you. Look at the sun, but don't worship it. Okay, it's part of the creation, just like us. Also think, think about this. So God uses secondary causes. But, you know, God doesn't give us light from just any source. Now, of course, we do know God is capable of giving us unmediated light. If we think about light in the bookends of the Bible, we've got Genesis before the fourth day. There's light. There's this unmediated light. It's the glory of God light. I don't know what kind of light it is, but it's there, right? And we look at the end of the Bible. Scripture tells us in Revelation that, uh, you know, there is no sun, right? God is the light, right? We have that unmediated glory light both in the beginning and the end of the Bible. But God sees fit on the fourth day to make a secondary means, right? This light uh, that is a creation, right? It's a creaturely light that God provides for us. 
God's capable of giving unmediated life. But of course, he gives us a mediated life. He uses secondary means. He uses the sun as the means by which he gives light to the world. He gives it through the sun. The sun gives light and God gives light. Both are true. God's ordinary providence works like this. God provides, but he provides through natural means. It's God's providence that makes the waves stop at the shore and go no further. Or sometimes go further than we'd like. It's God's providence that takes the beauty of a tadpole and gives it legs. And takes that fat chubby little body and transforms it into that muscular frog, right? That's God's good providence. When you get sick and the doctor gives you medicine, that's God's good providence. Those doctors are in a long line of people studying God's good creation in terms of the secondary means, in terms of how things work, and saying, I think antibiotics would be the right one here. And in most cases, it works out good. doesn't always. They're not God. But they're studying what they can in terms of creation, and God is using them providentially to heal you. And so we could say that all healing is of God. God uses secondary means. Praise God for penicillin. What a beautiful discovery, right? God heals, but he uses means in most cases. So how shall we interpret providence? So there's the idea. I want you to see that, you know, the sunshine today is God's good providence, right? But he uses a sun. Somebody getting better from a surgery or an illness is God's good providence, but he used the doctor. Sometimes he uses medicine, uh, you know, diet. Sometimes he just uses time, right? Time and a nap. Well, how should we interpret providence? That's, that's a good question, and uh, this is a big one, um, and I think we can really get ourselves bogged down when we try to, you know, the ancient Chinese would uh, take a, a turtle, and they would read the turtle shell, and that was an omen, and we've seen the Greeks would split open birds, and read the birds, and read their guts, and their entrails, and there's a long, weird history of trying to figure out what the actions of history mean, okay? Um, so let's think about what the Bible has to say of this. Um, significant events happen. Maybe it's good or bad from our perspective, and we'd like to fill in the blanks with a good providence or a rough providence. But should we imagine that when something good happens, it's because we're good? Is it like, uh, oh, what is it, Sound of Music? I must have done something good. I don't remember the song, but is there a one-to-one -one correlation between our good actions and good outcomes? Is there a one-to-one -one correlation between our bad actions and our bad outcomes, right? The fact is we live in a wacky, topsy-turvy world where things aren't right, right? Go look at Ecclesiastes. The righteous get what the wicked deserve. The wicked get what the righteous deserve sometimes. It's not a perfectly equitable society in the here and now. So should we imagine, uh, you know, that there's a correlation between uh, our actions and stuff? Well, consider Job for a moment. Uh, early chapters of Job, he's a pretty righteous dude, right? Here he is, his kids are out partying, he's waking up early in the morning, he's making sacrifices, hoping to atone for their, for their errors, etc. Um, but then, of course, after, you know, God curses Job, he lets, you know, basically... God picks a fight with Satan, and he uses Job as the secondary means to fight that out, right? And uh, you know, 
God says you can do anything, just don't strike his flesh, right? So he loses his family, he loses his herds, he loses everything except his wife. And at that point, she wasn't terribly encouraging, just, Job, why do you hang on to your integrity? Why don't you curse God and die, right? And then, of course, his friends, his friends come along and they tell him, well, Job, obviously bad stuff has happened, and you read Rabbi Kushner's book, Bad Things Happen to Bad People, or why good, bad things happen to good people is his book, but... But no, they're saying, obviously, bad things are happening. There's some laundry list of sin that you got hidden somewhere, Job, right? Well, Job's friends are telling him it's because he's sin, sinful. Well, of course, we know in the account of Job, it has nothing to do with that, right? It's that God's glory might be manifest. It's that Job might remember, oh, that's the way the world works. You're God, I'm not, right? And hey, in the end, we see that God has a good purpose for this. Luke 13, 1 through 5. There were present uh, at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. For a first century Jew, what an awful thing that you're making sacrifices to Adonai, the name, and that you're slaughtered and your blood is mixed in with the sacrifices, which is a holy you know, offering unto God. Obviously, you must have done something wrong, gentlemen. That's sort of the, the feel. Well, this is what Jesus says. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or how about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, Jesus isn't saying, oh, everybody's fine. It, it was just this awful mishap. They didn't deserve it. He's saying you cannot draw a one-to-one -one correlation between somebody suffering some rough providence and some sin they've connected. Don't try to read God's providence like that. Beloved, we do this all the time, don't we? Oh, man, I must have really screwed up. That's why this is happening. Now, on the other hand, of course, we do realize that the whole creation, you know, it, it's longing for redemption, and it's longing for redemption because humanity, us, you know, willingly submitted it to that by our fall into sin and death. And so we know because of the reality of sin, yes, do we deserve the wrath and judgment of God? Absolutely. But can we draw those conclusions? Let's get really practical here. Um, I think it was, what, 2003 when they had that tsunami in uh, Thailand? They had a really bad, so not 2003, 2005-ish, somewhere around there. And we had our American television preachers get on, get on the TV and, this is obviously the judgment of God because of the sexual sins that go on in Thailand, perpetrated maybe by some, maybe by evangelical preachers in some cases, right? I don't know. Ravi Zacharias was doing some weird stuff. Watch out for that one. Watch out, Okay. We cannot read God's providence that way. AIDS pandemic, obviously it's the judgment of God on, you know, homosexuality. I mean, you could draw, there's probably some conclusions to be drawn there, but uh, in that sort of judgmental, are we going to put ourselves in the place of God and say, I know exactly why this providential outcome came? Now, we do have Romans 1, which sheds some light on those issues. But don't for a moment think that you can read the tea leaves of God's providence with divine intent. Okay? You just can't. You can't. 
think about Joseph. Joseph, of course, is buried in a pit by his brothers. He's sold into slavery, falsely accused, jailed. He serves Pharaoh, and he ends up saving many, right? At the end of that whole account, and do you think, do you think Joseph, as he was experiencing the rough providence of God being in a pit, being falsely accused of being a sex criminal as he went and signed up for the sex registry, right? I mean, this is awful. This, this is real for Joseph, right? As he goes ahead and uses his good gifts that God gave him to say, hey, this is what the dreams mean. Uh, hey, remember me when you get out of here? And they forget him, right? Do you think for a moment he wasn't thinking that's a rough providence of God? Um, but look what Joseph says. Joseph, uh, Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, brothers who threw me and sold me, right? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And of course, we see in Joseph a sort of early picture of the gospel, right? It's through the suffering of one man that a whole nation is redeemed, so to speak. So, beloved, I want you to see that God has his purposes in his providence, I want to say that providence, uh, as the last thing, that providence is our great comfort. We don't have to understand God's providence. We don't have to understand the why for close in our historical iteration, currently now, why, why, why? We always ask that question. We don't need to understand that in order to receive much comfort from this. Sometimes it seems to make no sense, God's providence. There's suffering, there's hardship, there's pain. No doubt Job and Joseph had their share of troubles. And Scripture promises you, the Apostle Paul tells you that you will too. Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Yet we can rest in the fact that you will always have God's providential care. You know, what we've said about God's good providence, uh, notice there's something different about you. And it, this is, you know, just a... God is your father, okay? The way in which the providential actions of God pan out in the future and in the present are something that is for our comfort. You can rest in the fact that you'll always have God's providential care. It's God's care. It cannot be changed. God's providence has a purpose. Even though we often can't know the immediate purpose, we know the ultimate purpose, right? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Somehow, God, this is working out to glorify you, and I am going to learn to enjoy this. Not in some sadistic old grin and bear it, but no, your greatest joy will become to fruition through this. Ephesians 1, th 1, 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption him to himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, 
making known to us the mystery of his will, that according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So this leads us, of course, to Romans 8, 28, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Beloved, by faith in Christ, God is your father, your sufferings, your futzing about with trying to understand God's good providence. It has a purpose. It has a goal, right? The goal, of course, is that you will be the apple of his eye, and you have been since eternity past, as you trust in the Savior, that you will be perfected in beauty and holiness, that you will reflect the image of Christ perfectly, and that our present sufferings, which, by the way, Paul says are not to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed, um, are a gift. It's a gift to show us our need for the Savior. It's a gift to show us who our Savior is, now, let's just be honest. If this view of reality doesn't have the God-man taking upon the nature of humanity and bearing the wrath of God, that is pretty sadistic. But God comes. God bears the penalty for our sins. God comes. And in the person of his son, he lives a righteous life, and he gives you that life so that you can have a conscience that is free, so that you can say, God, I don't owe you anything besides gratitude. You are satisfied with me and your son. So that we could look at our neighbors, not out of competition, but we could look at them as a fellow creature, and we could share the gospel with them. We can love them, not expecting anything of them. Let's pray. Father, uh, we give thanks for learning about your providence. There's a lot that could be said. Um, we pray that this would be useful as we think about your good acts in history to redeem a people, to build a kingdom, to magnify your name, and help us to love one another. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.